0: church family. We are in the middle of a series through the book of Titus. Uh, Titus is a unique book in the Bible in that the book of Titus was written to a specific person. It wasn't written to a specific church. Uh, Titus was one of Paul's missionary companions, and after being trained by Paul Paul left Titus on an island called Crete. Paul left Titus on this island of Crete to put the churches there into order, to put the churches into order. The apostle Paul had helped start a network of churches on the island of Crete, and he sent his his protege, his child in the faith, young Titus, to go help these churches out. So the book of Titus is essentially an instruction manual on how to build a healthy church. What should we do to get our church going, to put it in order? So if this had been written today, we might have expected Paul to tell Titus something like this. Titus, I want you to go out on this island. I want you to go find the most engaging, the most likable people on the island. Find one person who's super engaging and let them stand up behind the church pulpit and speak every Week. You'll draw a great crowd of people, just find somebody that's super engaging and likable. And after you do that, I want you to scour across the island of Crete in search of the most talented musicians that the island has to offer and convince them to come play for your services. Now that sort of advice would have undoubtedly succeeded in helping the churches in Crete to grow in number, but that's not really the advice that Paul gives to Titus in this letter. So the first piece of advice, the first job that Paul gave to Titus was to appoint godly elders. Titus' first job was appointing godly elders in each church whose teaching and living aligned with sound doctrine. Paul tells Titus, find men who are above reproach in their character, someone who no legitimate claims of unfaithfulness or egregious moral failure can be brought against must be sound in their living, in their lives, in their deeds. They also must be sound in their doctrine and able to teach that doctrine to others. In verse nine, he tells Titus, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught and be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. An elder must be someone who lives according to what is true and who teaches according to what is true. So there's a second aspect of this too. Elders are to, verse nine, teach sound doctrine, yes, and they're called to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. The elders were called to rebuke and silence false teachers who denied God both by their teaching and living. You see that in chapter one and verses 10 through 16. The job of these elders wasn't only to teach what is right, it was to call out, rebuke, to silence the teaching that's not right in their churches. Paul, in verse 11, is describing these false teachers. He tells Titus, these guys need to be silenced. They must be silenced. They're teaching what, ought not, what they ought not to teach. You need to rebuke them sharply. Their teaching was not aligned with sound doctrine. And it wasn't just their teaching, their very lives were not aligned with sound doctrine. Verse 16 to chapter one, Paul says, these false teachers they profess with their mouth to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. And so that's how he ends chapter one. That leads us directly into chapter two, where Paul calls Titus and the elders and every member of these churches to be completely different than those false teachers. Those false teachers, unfit for any Good work. Chapter two starts with the phrase, but as for you, as for you, Titus, you be something different. The elders in the church, you be something different. The members of the church need to be something different entirely than the false teachers. It leads to our big idea that the members of a church adorn the gospel as they participate in sound teaching and sound living. The members of a church adorn the gospel as they participate in sound teaching and And sound living. And so we're going to jump into our text this morning Titus chapter 2, verses 2 through 10. Paul says, Older men are to be sober minded, dignified, self controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything, they're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. God, we love you. God, we're grateful for your word. God, we're grateful for the book of Titus and what it teaches us as a church, how to live and teach according to sound doctrine. spread that you would by your spirit, would convict us and help us to understand your word rightly this morning. Amen. So we're going to start off with a, a test this morning. I know everybody loves tests. It's going to be a group test, okay? It's going to be a test about phrases. It's going to be really easy, I promise. Four phrases, and I'm going to say the first part of the phrase and I want you to help me finish the phrase. So you have permission to talk out loud. We're gonna see if you guys can make 100 on the the phrase test, okay? So the first phrase, if you know it, you join in when you can, is that actions speak louder than words. Very good, everybody's making 100. Question number two, or sorry, phrase number two. If you're gonna talk the talk, you gotta walk the walk. Right, still making 100, two for two. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Y'all are awesome. Three out of three. One more to go. We already got at least a 75. One more to go. Last one. Do what I say, not what I do, right? Do what I say, not what I do. I'm not really sure if the Apostle Paul would have ever said that last phrase. Do what I say, not what I do. Actually, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he basically tells the church in Corinth the exact opposite. First Corinthians 11, he tells this church, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Do what I say and what I do. Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. That was Paul's model. All right, he modeled it with Timothy and he modeled it with Titus. And he expected it to be something that the entire church of Crete modeled as well. Between the elders and every member of the church, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So what does it look like when an entire church is committed to this? When an entire church is committed to sound teaching and sound living? So a few introductory notes before we get to the first point on your handout about these lists of commands that are given to different age groups and different genders. The first is that these lists are meant to be illustrative, not exhaustive meaning he didn't list every single command that he could have given to older men or younger men or older women or younger women. This is simply illustrative of the types of characteristics, the types of things that these people should be doing. These groups should be doing these things, but it's not an exhaustive list. Another thing to note is that just because a command is given to one group doesn't necessarily mean it's only for that group. For example, older women are the only group given the command to not become slaves to wine. The rest of us don't get a pass on that. We obviously have to obey that too. Okay, so just because it's given to one group doesn't necessarily mean it's, it's not applicable to all. Some are specific to each group, but some, most actually, are applicable to all, all groups. The third one, uh, almost all of the requirements given to elders in chapter one, you, you see somewhere here in chapter two given to all the people in a church. So you might say, well, except for teaching. Actually, teaching is commanded here in chapter two. Not necessarily from a pulpit, giving a sermon, but everybody is called to teach in some capacity. The last one is that this pattern isn't necessarily universal. There can be wise younger men and there can be unwise older men. But for the most part, wisdom comes with age. The general pattern given in the Bible is tied as to older men teaching, discipling younger men. Older women teaching and discipling younger women. So what does this look like? What does it look like when an entire church is committed to sound teaching and sound living? We'll start with the men. It looks like older men leading by example and younger men learning how to lead. Older men leading by example and younger men learning how they should lead. So as I read through this text this week, one of the questions that kept popping up in my head was, how do you know which side of this spectrum you're on? How do you know if you're still on the younger man's side or if you've moved into the older man side? So I thought probably would be wise of me to ask somebody older than me. That seems to be what this text recommends, Seeking Wisdom from Older People. Uh, That's the pattern given. So as I was thinking about who I could ask, into my office popped in g You might know him better as Cody Lyon. Cody Lyon, church janitor. So I thought, you know, this is great. This must be a sign from God that I'm supposed to ask Cody what this text means. So I asked Cody, which side of this are you on? Are you on the younger side still? Have you moved over into the older side? Cody, in his profound wisdom, he said, neither. I'm middle-aged, Then I'm middle-aged. I'm not the young side, I'm not on the old side, I'm middle-aged. So all of you middle-aged people, you guys can go ahead and take a nap. This is not addressing you, no, just kidding. Actually, I think which side of this you're on can be contextual, okay? To some of you here this morning, I am younger than you, I'm a younger Man, to some of you here this morning, we're in this section, I'm an older man. I am older than you. When I'm upstairs teaching youth, I have my older man hat on, teaching hat on. When I'm at like a men's Bible study, I'm usually one of the younger people, so I'm more quiet and slower to speak and quicker to listen. So I think both can apply to you at different times, even though you might be the same age, right? So men, we're gonna just address men, all of us, because you could be both of these depending on the day, okay? When we find ourselves in a situation where we have an opportunity as an older man to influence younger men, what should we do? We should do what verse two says. We should lead by example. We should be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and in love, and in steadfastness. While saying, older men, your lives ought to exemplify the God that you serve. You can't, Tell the younger men, do what I say, not what I do. It doesn't work when it comes to biblical Christian discipleship. We have to be more like Paul when he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Don't just tell younger men what to do. They need to see it in your lives. They need to see it in your teaching, in your words, and in your living, in your deeds. So younger men, look with me me at verse 6. Paul tells Titus to urge the young men to be self-controlled. And then in verse 7, he starts talking directly to Titus as a younger man. He says, Titus, as a younger man, show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works. Saying, Titus, you and the other young men, you guys don't get a pass on this stuff. Like, sometimes in our society, we give young men a pass. Like, until they reach a certain age, they're allowed to act a little foolish. Like so Boys will be boys. You know, Paul's saying, even as a younger man, you have to honor Christ with your life. And he even gives young men the command to teach. I would have expected that to come to the older men, teaching the younger men, but it's even given here to the younger men. Younger men, if you want to become a good teacher, find a godly older man who can mentor you. Someone who might not even have the same hair color as you anymore. Someone who might not have been born in the same century As you, someone who you might have nothing in common with other than your shared belief in the gospel. You might think you have nothing to gain from a cross-generational relationship with somebody. Social media, culture certainly tells us that is true. It's the older people, that's the problem. Actually, it's the younger people, that's the problem. Think about this in in a divided church. In a divided church, younger people often say, if we could just get rid of the older, older people. We could, we could update the music. We could finally you know, paint, get rid of the nasty carpet. We could get with the times. Right? We need to get rid of these older people that are standing in our way of this. That's the problem with the church. On the other end of the spectrum, in a divided church, the older people sometimes say, if we could just get rid of those young people, <laughs> our church would be better. Our church would go back to the way it was Right, the good old days. These people are coming in, they're changing things. They're fixing stuff that's not broken. We've done it this way my whole life. We don't need to change it. Our church is doing good. Those younger people is what the problem is in the church today. Now we understand that both of those ways of thinking are flawed ways of thinking. Both of those ways of thinking are worldly ways of thinking about the generation that's different than you, the younger or older generation. Older people are not a problem to be removed or a barrier to progress in the church. Younger people are not a problem to be squashed or eliminated or silenced. That's a worldly way of thinking. Now here at Emmanuel, we are very, very blessed to have many godly men, godly older men, godly younger men, godly older women, and godly younger women. And we need all of those people. A healthy church needs members from multiple generations. But a church with only older people is gonna be a dead church before too long. A church with only younger people is soon gonna be overrun with all kinds of spiritual immaturity. We need godly older people and we need godly younger people. Older men and younger men, we need you. We need you both for the sake of the gospel. We need older men leading by example and younger men learning how to lead. And so after starting with the older men, Paul moves to address the women in these churches. So what does it look like when the women in a church are committed to sound teaching and sound living? It looks like older women training the next generation and younger women serving their families. Older women training the next generation and younger women serving their families. So again, Paul advocates for this multi-generational model of discipleship, the older women discipling the younger women. And he adds a third generation, the younger women discipling their children, their families. Older women discipling younger women, younger women discipling their families. You got three generations of discipleship there. And so just like he does with the older men when he addresses the older women, he starts first with their own personal lives, their own personal walk with the Lord. He tells the older women to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, are slaves to much wine. And then he tells them, you are to teach what is good and so train the young women. Again, it's not the do what I say, not what I do model. It's the imitate me as I imitate Christ model. So what are the older women primarily training younger women to do? Verse four, this younger women should love their husbands and children They should be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their husbands. So if you want to offend somebody really quick this afternoon, just go ahead and post these verses on your Facebook and say nothing else. Just post, women should work at home, be submissive to their husbands. Just post that and say nothing else. These are not popular ideas in our culture today. They're not popular, but they are presented here in our text, and so I feel the need to address address them. So let me say a couple things before we move on. Um, Paul's instruction for young women to work at home is not an exclusion from working outside of the home. Okay, Christian wife, Christian mother, you can be obedient to Titus too and have a job outside of your house. You don't need to feel guilty of that. Okay, Paul's not saying a woman can never have a job outside of the house. But he is saying that your work in the home is more important than that. Your work in the home is your most important, your primary work as a Christian wife, as a Christian mother. Your work inside the house is more important than anything that you could possibly do outside of it. Those of you who don't work outside of the home, you stay-at-home mothers, you don't need to feel guilty either. Our world can sometimes uh, shame stay-at-home moms, make you feel tempted to think, well, aren't you wasting your talents? You're not getting to pursue your dreams, pursue a a career. And people might ask, don't you want to pursue something more fulfilling in life, something more meaningful? Aren't you tired of changing diapers every day? Aren't you tired of picking up toys? Aren't you tired of wiping butts? Christian mothers do not buy the lie that that stuff is not meaningful. That is the most important thing you could do in your life, is training and discipling your kids in the faith. So you can be obedient to this call to work in your home, whether you have a job outside of the house or you don't. So the next kind of controversial issue to the women is the submissive part. It calls women to be submissive to their husbands. Husbands, you are the spiritual leaders of your family, but that doesn't give us a right to be jerks. Okay? It doesn't give us that right to do that. We're called to love our wife the same way that Christ loved the church and laying down his life for it. In Colossians chapter 3, immediately after telling wives that they should submit to their husbands, he addresses the husbands. Verse, chapter 3, verse 19. He says, husbands, you should love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Do not be harsh with them. So the biblical model is that husbands are the spiritual leaders and wives are to submit to that, but that doesn't give husbands a right to be jerks and women are not doormats, Okay. So we're gonna move from those controversial issues to the next highly controversial issue in Titus chapter two in verses nine and 10 where Paul talks about slaves and masters. In the ESV, it uses the word bondservant. Okay, bondservant. It is okay to admit that in the Bible, in biblical times, there were slaves. Think about God's people, uh, the nation of Israel in the book of Exodus. They were slaves in Egypt, Okay. Slaves in Egypt until God rescued them basically through the Exodus, and then they were their own nation, and they were not very good at it, and then they got exiled and they went back to being slaves in the Babylonian exile. Fast forward to the New Testament, to Paul's day, there were slaves under the authority of Rome. Okay, Roman authority. When we hear the word slaves today as Americans in the 21st century, we automatically, in our minds, go. To the practice that happened in our own country through the late 1800s, where African American people were enslaved for no reason other than the color of their skin, you were born into it with no hope of escaping. But that is not exactly a one-to-one comparison between what happened here in ancient Rome. Okay, the stuff in ancient Rome—it wasn't race-based, it wasn't for life generally, and you could even. Choose to become a slave of your own free will if you wanted to pay off some sort of a debt, and then once you paid it off, you could earn your freedom back, essentially. That's not to say it was a good, good moral practice, but it wasn't the same thing as what happened here in America. And besides that, the main point in Paul bringing it up isn't primarily to address the condition of slavery, but to encourage those who were under that, under that in Rome. And encourage them how to be faithful to God in that kind of a situation. In Colossians 3, 23, Paul tells bond servants that they should work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. Work heartily for the Lord and not for men. And so, so how do we apply that sort of a thing to us today? I think the best way to do it is to, to say that people under authority should work faithfully. It looks like people under authority working faithfully faithfully. When you go out into your jobs, your job is not your primary. Like Chris talked about this a second ago. He wants to be seen as a follower of Christ who happens to work a real job. That's what, that's what Chris wanted to say. And that's kind of what Paul is advocating here. When you go out in your real jobs, when you honor your bosses and work faithfully and work hard, you're not doing it just for your boss. You're really doing it for Christ. Work heartily for the Lord and not Men, you're really honoring Christ. You're really working for Christ when you do that. A large number of people in our town would never walk through our doors to come to one of our services on their own. It doesn't matter how awesome the music is or entertaining the service; they're not—they're not, they're not going to come in. So, so what do we do? How do we reach those kinds of people? Well, it looks like men and women working faithfully in their jobs. It looks like men and women being sound in their teaching and their living in this building and outside of it, right? working faithfully by letting your godly speech and your godly deed to be a witness of what God has done in your life to those that you work with, to those around you. You might be the only contact that that person has to the gospel, and you might be how God reveals himself to that person. So why is this, why is this stuff important? Why is it important that our older men should lead our younger men And our older women should train our younger women and that we should work faithfully in our jobs. Why is it important for an entire church to be committed to sound teaching and sound living? So kind of sprinkled throughout this text, Paul gives three purpose statements. Three so that or that statements. And they're given to to different groups, each one of them. But really they're given to all of the groups. They're given to all of them. So I'm going to give you the first two kind of back to back. In verse 5, Paul tells the young woman to be intentional about working in the home. And then he says, you're going to do this so that the word of God may not be reviled. So that the word of God may not be reviled. And he jumps down in verse 8, where he's talking to the young men. He's telling the young men, you should be sound in speech and in your conduct, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. In other words, so that the people of God may not be reviled. So that the word of God may not be reviled, and so that the people of God may not be reviled. Now, this doesn't mean that the world is not going to try to revile the word of God or try to revile the people of God. The world does that all the time. But Paul is saying, don't give them any leg to stand on. The false teachers in chapter 1, verse 16, they profess to know God but they denied him with their works. Paul's saying, don't let that be true of you, Titus. Don't let that be true of your elders, and don't let that be true of the members in your church. Don't let them have any grounds for reviling you. There will be people whose words and deeds whose teaching and living align with sound doctrine. Why? The purpose, so that the doctrine of God our Savior may be adorned the world, so that the doctrine of God our Savior may be adorned. Paul gives that purpose statement to the bondservants who are working faithfully in doing that they can adorn the, do- the doctrine of God our Savior. Paul's saying your lives can make the gospel seem beautiful to the world around you or they can make it seem detestable like the false teachers were doing. Our world is in need of a Savior and we can show him to them with the way that we Walk in the way that we talk, the way that we teach and the way that we live. With the words that we say and the deeds that we do. Let our teaching and our living be the way that we adorn the gospel to the world around us. And so I'm going to end by reading the sermon text for next week. I promise I'm not going to preach a second sermon. But right after this list of commands given to these different men and women, different age groups, The next part is really just like the gospel-centered motivation for why, a gospel-centered basis for why you should be obedient to these things. So Titus 2, 11 to 14, Paul says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. God, we're grateful for your word this morning. God, we're grateful for the book of Titus and what it teaches us and challenges us in how to be the church that's living for your glory. God, I pray that We would be a people who are zealous for good works, God, not in an attempt to earn our salvation, but because we have received it already because of the grace of God. God, let that be our motivation, a gospel-centered motivation for good works. We pray this in your name. Amen.